Welcome to the Rogue Bows. This is the My Journey series, episode 12. Lots to get through today. This was a really uh, grueling one to even put a run sheet together for, and you'll see why soon. But touching on last season, finish the season off with a misdiagnosed back injury. So uh, for anyone who hasn't listened to episode 11, circle back and, and even go back to one if you haven't listened to one. Start from one, obviously, and get your way to 12 because these are um, in chronological order from from day one of kind of my life, really, uh, to, to now. So if you're catching up and not knowing what I'm talking about, you need to circle back. But touching on... Episode 11 real quick, finished that season, got shut down and misdiagnosed with back issues that ended up being stress fractures, which I tried to play through for numerous weeks, if not a month or two. Um, and that had caused me to now go into an off season of rehab. And that's where we're going to start this one. So back rehab, uh, never really had an injury in my career that had kept me out of the game for an extended period. This includes... Uh, being young, never broke a bone, never broke, never tweaked anything where I was out for a game uh, as a child. Going on into high school, the same thing, never missed a game for an injury. The AIS, I had a, uh, a small uh, kind of disc issue in my back um, where I was out for about, I think, two or three weeks and that was it. Didn't miss any games though because it was the off season and then Went on to the University of Utah, never missed a game. First couple of years in the NBA was pretty, you know, healthy for the most part. A uh, few few knocks and bruises, but nothing long term. So this was the first time I had to deal with the adversity of, of a long, grueling rehab, and kind of what that entails and and um, is. A, a lot of people out there won't really know. Um, and this isn't. I'm not saying this to have a sob story. How people so, feel sorry for athletes or myself, but. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that people don't realize. So with this back rehab, I had you know the stress fracture. There was no surgery involved. It was literally just we need to shut you down for a bit, rest you, and then slowly work our way up to getting your core strength, your hip strength, your, your glute, which is your bum, um, all those kind of muscles and, and, and attachments and ligaments and everything just firing to support uh, your back, basically. So most people that have had back issues or have them right now, have had them in the past, it's generally a number of things. It's, it generally starts from from a, a core strength that isn't where it needs to be, a weaker core strength. It could you know, also be um, not enough strength in your glutes and your legs and your hips. It can also be... <laughs> You know, tight hips, tight glutes. You could be the strongest man or woman in the world, but if if you're tight in your hips, um, not as flexible, you're tight. You, you know, and you're moving different um, in your glutes and upper back, it can put a strain on your lower back. So I've come to realize with lower backs, there's a million different things that can affect it, but there is a pretty simple formula um, to, to to try and. I guess minimize when you do tweak your back that it's not as severe. So people that will go and pick something up one day and, and tweak their back, that's generally because, you know, they're not engaging their core, they're not engaging muscles around their back and they're using all back. That's why, you know, the old saying is live with your knees, don't live with your back. Anyhow, that's all boring stuff, but um, 
my rehab basically started with just some core and Pilates. Uh, I work with a guy named Dominic Tromboli. No, not the underworld figure. Um, this is a, the brother of uh, the Tromboli that played for the Socceroos. He's a kind of a, uh, a, a core and, and movement expert there in Melbourne. So I, I was back in Australia for my rehab. Did a lot of stuff with Dominic. Did a lot of stuff with a guy named Bernard Babujek, uh, who was been with a, a number of Australian rules football teams in Australia. Um, he's kind of a big on running gait and, and movement, um, core, all that kind of stuff. So I worked a little bit with him as well. Uh, he was involved in the national team when I was a young fellow as well. So really, really nice guy. A lot of time for everybody, but he does a lot of a lot of stuff. And his main his main uh, strength is running gait and you know, uh, I guess tweaking people's movements when they run so they don't get injured and so they're more efficient. So it might be, you know, changing the way your steps are or your, or your arm movement or your gait or your hips or this or that or how you move around cones and all that kind of stuff. So he was he was real valuable there. Uh, the Bucks flew out of trainer uh, a few times to come and see me. Everything was going well. Um, I was going, I was getting better and better, but it was really, really slow. It was just a tedious rehab where, you know, the ramp up process is as a professional athlete is very hard because you want to be left, let off the leash, uh, as, you know, to use that analogy, because you feel like you can, I can go and just have a one-on-one workout with a coach for, for an hour. I feel like I'm there, but you forget there's jumping, there's dunking, there's rebounding where you're going to strain your back. So they, they need to with these kind of rehabs and because it was the off season there was no point trying to go hard early it was like let's ramp it up step by step so each week we do a little bit more and then you see if there's a setback and if there's a setback then you tweak it a little bit and it's kind of a bit of a chess game when it comes to to injury management with long-term injuries and that's with that that goes with everything ankles knees whatever rehab you got to kind of listen to your body at times and at times, when you're an athlete, you do listen to your body, and sometimes you don't. When you're in the middle of a season or a final series, you shoot me up, give me meds, whatever I need to do, um, which can have a detrimental effect to your body long term. But um, that's kind of the, the 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 now is usually the most important for athletes. Where it isn't is the off season, where you can really kind of take your time and tweak things. So. Like I said, strengthening, core, a lot of gym work. Um, then I started getting into some light running. Then it moved on to some light basketball work, one on zero. Then obviously more intense and more lifting. Um, and then some contact stuff started. So what does that mean? Well, contact was first with the coach with just a, a pad that's hitting you as you're going up for, for shots and whatever, getting a bit of that that impact to see how your back responds. And you do that for a week and um, you move on from that. But look, I got through the rehab pretty well, uh, got healthy. But from this day forward, I would forever have back issues, forever. Um, still to this day, I mean, in, in retirement, I still have to really uh, be careful what I do and when I do it. I have to continuously work out. I have to, which is a good thing. I want, you want to stay healthy, and I'm a big, I'm big, I'm pro. I think all people should work out three, three to four times a week in some capacity, whether it's going for a walk, a run, weight room, whatever you want to do. I think that's very, very important. But uh, this taught me that, you know, this is this is a lifelong thing now. I've, I've got I've got an issue from, um, you know, that was misdiagnosed at one point in my career. And if that wasn't misdiagnosed that way, I don't believe it'd be as severe. I still think I'd probably have some back issues, but uh, just because of my height, but it was, it was brought on much more severe because of, of a misdiagnosis, right? So you move on from there. Um, get through the rehab, like I said, fine. But it was what it taught me was 
and now I needed to do much more um, on a day-to-day basis to get myself ready for games, to get myself ready for um, practices, to get myself even ready to jump on a plane or, or while I'm on a plane doing certain things. And, and what did that mean? It meant a lot of stretching, a lot of uh, rolling out on a foam roll or, or a ball, like a hard ball. Um, a lot of massage, a lot of physio, a lot of core work, Pilates, the list goes on and on. Physio was, was, was the biggest one for me, making sure that before a game or before a practice that they checked my hips, it was all aligned. You know, sometimes my hips would be off just from the wear and tear of an NBA season, making sure that's all lined up. And if it's off a little bit, we fix it before we go out on the floor so it doesn't then um, pull on your back and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot that, like I said, people don't know that athletes are doing and, and this would be I'd come home from games and practices um, the rest of my career and I'd be rolling out on the floor. I'd be stretching. I'd ever really sit on the couch just because I'd, I'd be stretching or rolling out. I mean, the, a co-owner uh, or the majority owner in the Sydney Kings, when I was playing there, used to laugh and, and call the ball that I carried with me the, the Magic 8 ball because it, it was the size of an, a Magic 8 ball and it was black and I'd be rolling my back up and down while coach was doing his meeting before we run out, run out to – to do warm-ups in games and practices, any chance I got, I'd be on that ball rolling out and just trying to relieve a bit of pain. And, and it helped helped so much. And I think some of it might have been placebo, but a lot of it was like, oh, you know, the left, my left side of my back saw I'm just going to roll out for 15 minutes while, while we're doing film or while we're doing this or while we're doing that. And that's what I learned. I learned to take any opportunity I could, whether it was on an airplane, I'd have a ball with me. Um, you know, in terminals when I was traveling internationally, I'd be rolling out and just rolling on the floor. And um, the floor is my most valued piece of furniture uh, once I had my back injury because I'd be on there a hell of a lot. So that's just a small kind of breakdown of, of what I now have to endure as as a as someone with, with, with back. And, and thankfully, post-retirement, I had a microdisectomy surgery, which we'll get into in, in further episodes. And I've, I've been pretty good since then. But like I said, it's something that's an ongoing thing. If, if I don't work out for a month and then I want to go out and – jump on the surfboard or go four-wheeling or go and do something where I'm, you know, using my back, I'll feel it the next day, right? So I just got to be careful there and, and, and make sure I keep working out. So going into the 2009-10 season, look, I felt okay. I, my back was still um, – I was healthy, but it was pulling up very sore post most practices and games. And then then you're in a position mentally where you're like, is this going to start into a back spasm again or is this, is this still a stress fracture? Is this still – have I been misdiagnosed again? Have, you know, so you, you, you're kind of a bit of a hypochondriac and I don't think, you know, it, it's it's by design. It's kind of, you know, you've, you've been told at times you're healthy when you're not and you've played through it and, and then made it worse. So you're always kind of starting to, starting to second guess people that are experts in the field, which you don't want to do. But at the same time, there's a bit of a lack of trust because of, of, of what's happened to you. Like it's it's like a dog that's been beaten. You, you know, your owner's going to, the owner's going to beat the dog up. The dog knows that and it's kind of, you know, second guessing itself or scared or, or this and that. So that's kind of what I felt like. But um, I, was, I was pulling up sore most games, but like I said, a simple rollout and stretch and some mobilizations and getting extra rehab and treatment in whenever I could around the clock before and after games and, and practices really made a difference for me. Like I'd, I'd walk in some days to training, 10 o'clock session, I'd walk in at 8 a.m. and get about 30, 40 minutes of work on my hips, my glutes, get, get a bit of massage, get some physio, get some mobilizations, then go in the weight room and do some core stuff. And then 
I'd be fine to practice, even though I walked in there not feeling great. And this was daily. That was every day now. So every day I had to come in early and and even stay late and get extra treatment afterwards. I'd have guys, you know, masseuses and guys and girls come to my home, physios. I'd get extra sessions away from the club. So it took a lot of time, but that's how I stayed healthy. So anyhow, we talk about um, the game a little bit. Going into the season, not much was really expected of the Milwaukee Bucks. Like we hadn't sniffed the playoffs since 2006, which was my rookie year. We had, had you know, what is that? So 06, 07, 07, 08, 08, 09, no playoffs, not even really close. A few tanking years in there. But we had a solid squad. We had a, a pretty solid squad. We just drafted Brandon Jennings with our first round pick. Uh, he came in with swagger. Michael Red got hurt that year. He was kind of the the main piece offensively for us for the past three or four years when I was there and um, a scorer, but we not a lot of success with him leading the team as a scorer. And he went down and then other guys stepped up um, and we kind of started to put it together a little bit. Um, some small tweaks to the roster. We had a lot of good role players like Luke Ridnow coming off the bench. We had uh, Kurt Thomas was an invaluable veteran for us that season. So we had a lot of, a lot of players who just – happy to buy into their roles and it was a good mix of youth and talent a few other notable names on that roster charlie bell uh was really really good for us um defensively kind of intangibles guard carlos delfino good friend of mine still talk to him to this day he was sensational um shooting the ball from three he was was could put it on the floor could do a little bit more than he showed in other teams um he was really good for us uh, we had Ursan Ilyasova, who ended up playing, you know, 14, 15 years in the NBA, who was really, really solid for us. We made a move for John Salmons late in the season, which was invaluable. Um, he was huge for us in a free agent year. We also had Jerry Stackhouse, who was towards the end of his year, but was a, a really good veteran. Hakeem Warwick was there. Rocco Leniukic, who was a, a guy I played. He played for the Croatian national team when I was a junior. We, we had some battles. Uh, Michael Red obviously hurt. Luke Red now big, like I said. Jody Meeks um, was a rookie shooter. Didn't play a whole lot, but but helped us some games. Luke Marbute was very, very um, important for us. He was our, our best defender. We guard one through five. It was really big. So you look at those names and there wasn't a big standout of of stars. Uh, back up big, Dan Gazarich and Francisco Elson. There wasn't something that jumps out at you like wow that, that team's gonna make some noise but we were we were solid we we, we put it together um as the season wore on we got better and better and i started out inconsistently up and down and the first i guess month with the back getting back on the floor up and down have a game with 20 and 10 and then a game with you know seven and five but started to feel better started to feel not just back wise but just mentally like i'm starting to really feel like i'm, I'm fitting in the nba and playing into my role and, and feeling good. And I put together, you know, a, a really good year numbers-wise and we won games. We got the sixth seed in the playoffs and, and we, we go on to, to play Atlanta, who were the three. We'll talk about that in a second. But my numbers in that season were career highs, um, my career best year numbers-wise on paper. So I averaged 15.9 points, so you can call it 16 points a night, 10.2 rebounds a night, uh, 1.8 assists and 2.5 blocks. Um, shot it at 52% from the field, 63% from the line. So my best year from the line, and just just felt good. Felt good. Played played a decent amount of minutes at 32.3, and just felt like it all came together. I, I you know started started and played. I played 69 games. Started all 69. Basically didn't miss a game 
from the um, start of the season until what is what is now a, a very famous YouTube clip um, of an injury. But look, my averages, like I said, were great. Uh, I was in the running for an all-star berth. I thought I would make it. Um, mainly after, so the initial squads got announced. This was an Allen Iverson, I believe, was on the Detroit Pistons squad. He got voted in by obviously all the, t- the fans in China and whatnot just because he was a big name, but he didn't have a great year. And I think he pulled out whether due to injury or just that he didn't think it was appropriate for him to go. I don't know what it was, but he didn't go to the All-Star game. So when he pulled out, there was an injury um, exemption spot ready, right? And when I didn't make the initial squad, I was I was pretty pissed because I thought, look, I, I've been playing really well. I, I really played well pre-All-Star. And I was like, man, like I, mean, I should be in the running for this. And then kind of the news that the club got from the league was, look, I think we were at 500 or around then at the time. They were like, look, you know, um, it's just one of those things that your your numbers are good, but your team's not winning. And I was like, okay, that's fair enough. Cool. Makes sense. Get it. So then Alan Iverson, as I said, bails out. And then future teammate David Lee was with the New York Knicks at the time. He gets the replacement spot for Alan Iverson. And I was like, okay, let me look at New York's record. They were like, towards the bottom of the east and <laughs> I'm just like okay so now it's not about the wins and losses it's about you know and, and not taking anything away from David Lee he had a phenomenal year numbers wise but it comes down to so now it's coming down to numbers on a on a on a bad team right so I thought that was really disappointing for me and I was a little bit pissed about it probably a little bit petty on my part but I was pissed about it but once I put two and two together you know, David had a great year. He's in a bigger market, the New York Knicks. It all kind of made sense with the way things work. And I was like, cool, whatever. And then funnily enough, even though I got hurt um, after All-Star break, I then made the All-NBA third team. So All-NBA first team is a fi- five players. All-NBA second team is five players. All-NBA third team is five players. I somehow make the top 15 without even really playing um, the rest of that season after All-Star but I didn't make the top 24 two weeks prior to, to my injury, right? So it just, it kind of, uh, it, it didn't didn't make sense to me. It was a head scratcher. I was very thankful to make an All-NBA team, uh, the first Australian to make an All-NBA team and um, was very, very thankful that I was essentially voted as a top 15 player in the league for that year. But let's get on to the play. This is probably where my career path changed for good or for bad. And I was in a great place mentally, physically, feeling good. The back was better. Um, was starting to put it together consistently, like I said, 16 and 10 a night with two blocks and, and two assists. Like really starting to feel good. I, th- I thought I could even get better than that for sure, like building on that in another off season and just continuing to get better. And playing against Phoenix at home, I always played well against Phoenix. I mean, Stoudemire was a smaller five-man and I loved him guarding me because I was bigger and stronger and I'd just get to my spots on the floor and I generally, historically, with the Milwaukee Bucks, had had really good games against the Phoenix Suns. Um, They were a very tough team, though, because they didn't really care if you were scoring inside. They just tried to push the ball up and get up threes. They were kind of the the first team to really try to push the limit on how many threes and how fast-paced we can play, which we see now every team doing. But anyway, the play, we get a defensive stop and I take off in kind of a half to like a mid sprint, 75% level sprint. So we get a stop, the ball misses, Carlos Delfino grabs a rebound. I just start running and without realizing that I'm kind of 
pretty much ahead of the pack at, at about maybe just close to the half court line. And I didn't realize that I'm just running down to usually bigs are taught, run run down the midline, get positioned, seal early, someone will throw it to you. As I'm running, I hear Scott Skiles yell, run, run, to, to me, I'm ahead of the pack, run, run. So I'm like, shit, I might, I might be ahead of the field here. Like, so I kind of turn, I turn my head as I'm passing half court and Carlos Delfino grabbed the rebound. He throws like a baseball three-quarter court pass to me on the money, like on the money. Leads me to it. I catch it one hand, lead a hand out as I lunge out to catch it at about the, just be, just after the three-point line. And I, I'm running full speed. So without a dribble, I catch it maybe, you know, just outside the free throw line, just inside the three-point line. No stride, no dribble. Go one, two, race to dunk. I feel a push on my lower back as I take off. And it was Stoudemire behind me. And and for those that have played basketball, when you jump off one foot, it's, it's I probably sh- I should have just taken an extra dribble and went off two feet. Um, in hindsight, hindsight's a beautiful thing. But when you jump off one foot, you're vulnerable because you 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 know basically a toothpick can can kind of get you off balance. A little finger prick can um, can get you off balance. And he get, he had a little hand on my back or my hip and gave that little kind of small little little shove that you think oh that's nothing. Because I was jumping off one, it gave me an extra bit of momentum. So then as I've dunked the ball, I swung so far off the rim that I was parallel with the ground. I just I don't know why. I just couldn't couldn't hang on anymore. Didn't get a great grip of the rim for some reason. Hung on, hung on, hung on until I was parallel. Hands slipped off the rim. I basically fall parallel to the ground. And so my back's about to just take a walloping on the floor and I've had back issues. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to stick my arm out, um, stick my right arm out to, to, to brace the fall. But from that height, I weigh 120-odd kilos, 250 pounds. Put my arm out, bang, right? I don't feel anything. <laughs> I don't feel anything at the time. I fall down. As I kind of half sit up, I look at my arm and my elbow is pointing to my face. That's when I lost it and I'm just like, screaming in pain um and i was just like out of it man i was like what is going on here my elbow shouldn't be facing this way i've realized i've done some damage so i get on my feet i get helped out by a trainer to the back of the room back of the locker room and i'm just for australians will know this reference but there's a thing called the whistle um it's like a a, a it's a drug that you kind of suck on and it kind of helps calm you down and helps your pain and I'm yelling at our trainer, like, where, where the fuck is the whistle? Give me a whistle. What's, what's a whistle? What do you want a whistle for? And I'm like, give me give me like the medication stuff. That we, we don't have that. What are you talking about? So in America, evidently, they don't have the whistle like we do in Australia. Uh, we see it a lot with um, AFL football players when they have a gruesome injury. They, the trainer runs out and there's always something in their mouth and that's the medication. Uh <laughs> So I'm losing it. I'm losing it. I'm like, give me some drugs. Give me anything. I need. Like the pain was like, you know, 20 out of 10. So the doctors, uh, physio, trainer, and the orthopedic surgeon were back in the rooms and they're like, no, 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 we're not going to give you any drugs yet. We, will, we, we can pop this back in for you. And then um, once it's popped back in, your pain will literally subside. It'll stop pretty quickly and and uh, you should be good to go. So I go, all right, cool. <laughs> Let's go. Hurry up. Just do it. Just do it. So, you know, he's jiggling it around, moving it around, trying to feel it. 
uh, they, they actually first off they had me on a, on an X-ray machine to see kind of the extent of, of, of where it was. They did that and they're like, look, we think we can get this back into place. Cool, okay, because they said, you know, the whole thing is get it back into place sooner and, you know, should should heal better and, and not cause any further damage. Heal faster at least. You'll be out for a little bit. But so they, anyway, they, they crack it back in. All right, how's your pain? I said, man, it's worse. <laughs> like, no, it should, should be better. Anyhow, go to the hospital, have a cast overnight, um, the next day I have to go into an MRI machine for the whole day. Uh, it was like five hours because I had to, I did my elbow, uh, forearm, uh, wrist, and then I got to my index finger, did that, and they wanted to do one more finger, which I think I broke, uh, I think I broke both my index and my middle finger. Got to the middle finger, I said, listen, I can't sit in this thing anymore, man. Like, I can't, I'm, I'm in immense pain. You know, anyone's had an MRI, it's rock hard, like a piece of wood in there, and I was like, this is it. I can't do any more. Like, you got enough information. Let's see what we got. And anyway, it ends up being a broken elbow. That was the issue. So I dislocated and broke my elbow. There was actually a crack in the in the bone of my elbow. So when they cracked my elbow back in, um, relocated it from the dislocation, it, it did go back in, but the pain was there was a floating bone in there. So, you know, you don't know that at the time, which is fine. I don't hold any grudges there. Uh, broken wrist, broken elbow, broken finger, index finger. Um, so I come out of that. <laughs> I come out of that MRI. We have surgery. Uh, the wrist thing's pretty standard. We don't need to touch that. Um, I had to get a pin put in my index finger. Still got the scar to this day. As uh, a metal metal insert at the top of my index finger near the knuckle. There is there was a clean out of my elbow to get that, that the fragments out and all that kind of stuff and make sure everything was good in there. That was all good. Come out of surgery with a cast literally from the top of my index finger all the way to my wrist, my forearm, my elbow, up to my shoulder, and my um, my elbow was put into a into a ninety degree angle. Um, so yeah, how do you sleep? How do you how do you shower? How do you go to the bathroom? Uh, it was hell. It wasn't easy, and it was a huge, huge adjustment, uh, especially sleeping. I'm not I'm not a I'm not a back sleeper, so it was really, really hard for me. Though. Oh, just lie on your back and and prop your uh, you know my elbow was my fingers are pointed to the sky, so it's in a ninety degree angle. Like you can kind of half put it against your chest, or you can have it up in the air. But I'm not a back sleeper, so I couldn't figure that out. Um, thankfully, we, my bed near my bed there was a window with some architrave that was poking out, and my wife had actually had photos of it back in the day, or my girlfriend at the time. And it was basically, I figured out a way of how to slide my right arm, which was in a cast, against the wall, and the architrave was held it, held it up, kind of if that makes sense. And I was lying on my side, so. I figured out a way, uh, figured out how to shower with one arm. Um, so at the start, I was putting a plastic bag around my my cast and then that just got too much work. So I just started showering with my right arm above my head the whole time. Um, you figure it out, you know, human beings are adaptable and you have to figure it out. But behind the scenes, that kind of stuff, people don't, don't see. They, they see an athlete like myself get injured, break their elbow and then – you know, six months later or a year later, they're back on the court and everyone's like, oh, you know, they're back, great. But no one sees the day-to-day. No one sees like you can't cut your own piece of chicken or steak. No one sees you can't 
go to the bathroom properly or you can't have a shower properly or, you know, your, your daily life is, is severely hindered and, and it's something you just got to push through. That That's the hardest part. And a lot of athletes struggle with it. At that point, I didn't really struggle with it. I kind of just saw it as, yeah, like, cool, I feel sorry for myself, but that's not going to get me anywhere. What's What can I do rehab-wise? When can we start doing things? And that was light at the end of the tunnel. And, and we were still battling, you know, in the playoffs. We're about to be in a, in a, in a playoff series. So... I still had something in my mind. Watched a lot of basketball. Thankfully, had a, had a nice home walk with a theater room and whatnot. So, I had a lot of distractions that could keep me kind of engaged. As much as you can only watch so much TV, it you know it helped a little bit. Uh, we then go on and make the playoffs, which was bittersweet. I'm not going to lie. I, I was I was very very happy for the club and the team, but I was also disappointed because it was our first successful year. Uh, for a number of years, we finally got there. The crowd in Milwaukee was sensational. The feed, the deer. Um, I infamously did, you know, squad six that season. So uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, man, we we just we we had a team of guys that were just just fit well together. We didn't have any huge names, but Brandon Jennings had a really good rookie year. Um, I had a great year. Delphine had a great year. Marbuta had a great year. It was all coming together and. I truly believe if I was healthy, we would have beaten Atlanta in that series. Uh, we should have beaten them anyway, to be honest. We The series went to seven games. Atlanta had home court. Uh, we we broke um, – I think we stole home court early. And No, sorry, it was 2-2. We went to Atlanta for game five. We win that. It's 3-2 going back to Milwaukee for game six. And we should be the favorites, right? We should win that series going home with a game six in hand. And we end up losing that game. We laid an absolute egg. I think we scored in the 60s. They pummeled us. We just couldn't score. And um, Atlanta go on to beat us in seven. But, uh, you know, it's easy to say if I, if I was, if I was. But I believe the year that I was having, I would have loved to have been part of that playoff series and had a chance to to go to the second round of the playoffs for the first time in, 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 in a number of years from Milwaukee. Uh, so... That was bittersweet, but then Squad 6 was one beautiful thing that was formed. Uh, so for a lot of people that aren't aware of what Squad 6 is or what it entailed, so going into that season, 2009-2010, I noticed you know there wasn't a lot a lot of passion to go to a Milwaukee Bucks game. Um, you know, we weren't winning games, and rightfully so. We weren't winning games. It's a smaller market. It's a blue-collar town. Uh, it's very cold for most of the NBA season, but very, very cold. The arena was old. It was kind of – we had a cave feel to it. It just – you know, there's a lot of reasons for fans not to go, even if we were half good, to be honest with you. So there were nights where we play, you know, before that season. You play on a Tuesday night. It's minus 15, minus 20 outside. It's snowing. People just – you know, it was a dead environment. So you're like, okay, what, what can I do to fix this? So I, I approached the um, – marketing department and ticketing department. I said, look, I want to buy 100, 100 seats uh, for the whole season and I want to, I want them in an area that's lower bowl that, you know, give me an area where there's a bulk of seats available and I want them to basically, I'll pay for them, but I, I want you to allow me to allow them to just bring ruckus and just act a fool at the game. The whole point was you need to be – you know, basically a cheer squad, basically like the European fans, drums, you know, trumpets, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to bring, I don't care. Your only, I guess, agreement that that, that that you have to get these tickets for free is you have to cheer and stand up the whole game. That's the only prerequisite. So like 
I don't care what you do before the game, after the game, you need to come to this game and yell, scream, cheer, boo the opponents, make fun of them, make it an atmosphere that is noticed. And so I remember we we end up having a, a Squad 6 tryout and it was for any diehard fans. And now, look, there were a lot of fans that love the Bucks but just couldn't afford to come to the games. You know, the tickets, even a small market, you know, $80, $100 per person for, for a good lower bowl seat. There a lot of fans that just couldn't afford it. So that was the other thing. I was like, I know there's fans out there that want to come and support us that probably can't afford it. So I have this audition and it was it was great. It was it was just basically like a talent show type setup. It was myself a local few radio personalities and Bucks personalities and and each fan would come up and do something to sell us or sell myself as to why they should be you know in the in the uh in squad 6 so they end up um doing all kinds of different things some people did poems some people did some people literally just got up there and did Bucks chants. Some people painted their faces. Some people did actual acted out skits with costumes. It was a great, great vibe. And it was something that I was like, shit, this is, this could be bigger than I thought. Like these people really love this. So anyway, we ended up having a hundred. We have a hundred selected. Um, they get tickets to every game. Like we said, like I said, you just got to cheer and act a fool. And we were good that year. So as, as the season was progressing, we were getting better and better and winning games. Squad Six was was starting to form its own identity in the arena. So they, they started going out on their own and, and doing. From what I understood, they they would meet at a at a local bar before the game, two hours before the game. They would chat about what they're going to do. Then that actually turned into a few days before the game. They would all communicate about, hey, we're going to give this player shit. We're going to do this about this player. And they had some hilarious chants about plays at free throw lines, like banter, joking. There was a there was a TV commercial, I think for like a deodorant company called, uh, and the song was like uh, "Love Stinks." Yeah, yeah. Um, for those who can remember it, that lived in the US, and Kevin loves at the free throw line. They're all chanting "Love Stinks." Yeah, yeah. Just, just you know, stuff like that was just really creative and really cool. And it was. It was never seen in the NBA, you know, in American sports, uh, football is a little bit different, uh, but basketball, it was kind of, you sit there and, you know, you, you, you cheer and yeah, okay, go team or boo you, hope you miss. And that was it. This was actually orchestrated and, and, it, and it became a, its own life form and it was so awesome. And, you know, we often had um, opposing players flip off squad six. We often had... Um, actual you know players from other teams comment on like man it's pretty cool like even though they're giving me shit like it was it was a cool atmosphere to play in and it made those nights on tuesday night or a monday night or or, or a game you know eighteen thousand seat arena we only have nine thousand people show up it made it seem full it became its own thing and it was awesome and those people were, were awesome and I did some things with them at the end of the season where we caught up at like a banquet and caught up with them and said hello to them and thanked them for their time. And, you know, they put a lot of effort in, which they didn't need to do, albeit they got free tickets, but they didn't need to do that. And it was just something that I thought was really, really cool. And I'm, I'm still, you know, I don't believe they do that anymore, which is disappointing. I would have wished someone would have carried that tradition on, renamed it, whatever. But I think it's something that sporting teams should look at. I think it's really, really, a really, really cool thing, especially if you're a team that that is – not selling out and you've just got a bulk of seats that you're not doing anything with anyway. It's like, you know, give them away. Give 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 the tickets away and give it to diehard fans that probably can't afford to come to 
every single game, but they might be able to afford to come to one or two, they'll, they'll come to then every one. And I think it, it, it created a very cool environment. For, for those that are interested more in that, you can jump on YouTube, type in Milwaukee Bucks Squad 6 and see the kind of things they did. There were a few local news stories on them. And then that momentum carried into the playoffs. The whole crowd started joining in on the chance they did. And it was um, it was a really, really cool time. As you can hear, it's kind of uh, something I'm, I'm really, really proud to be a part of. And I know those people were very thankful for the opportunity as I was what they did and transform that kind of quiet arena into something. And um, I wish it was still going to this day, but you know, time, time moves on. They've all moved on, but I know for a lot of those people, that was a very special time in their lives. I actually had some people reach out years after I left and said, listen, wish you all the best in your next club and all that, but I really appreciate what you did. It was some of the best time of my life, meeting new people, meeting Bucks fans, having something that we're passionate about on the same page, catching up for meals. So um, appreciate all that squad six. Like I said, YouTube, Morgan Bucks squad six, you'll find a bunch of stuff on there, which is uh, really cool. Season ends anyway. Uh, I have to go and rehab once again in Australia. This was a pain in the ass of a rehab. The back was one thing. This one was a whole different ball game because my elbow was in a cast for so long, when you extend your elbow, so you get your arm as straight as you can. When you're in a cast, I couldn't. I then took the cast off. I couldn't extend my elbow, so I'd get down to like if you if you put your elbow at 90 degrees, I was probably getting a 45, maybe, and then it just stop. So, what this entailed was the physio literally handing me a towel and saying, "Bite on this." I'm like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "You'll see." And he would have his arms behind my elbow and kind of his his wrist between his knees, and he would be just forcefully making that thing try to get as straight as it could. And in the first couple of weeks, it still didn't move much, started getting better and better, started getting better and better. And then, you know, they, they mobilize a little bit, then do some soft tissue and some loosening and then do it again and then do it again. And the problem was once we started getting it as straight, straighter, I then couldn't do a bicep curl. I couldn't go past 90 degrees the other way. <laughs> so it was just one of those things that we had to just continue to do on a daily basis. As I said, the things people don't see. Uh, Training-wise, I could I could kind of do conditioning on my feet. I could do you know any lower body weight work for the most part. I couldn't do any upper body really besides just some one-arm stuff with my left hand. So conditioning wasn't as good as it could have been strength-wise. But um, everything else was okay. I could still do a little bit. I couldn't shoot really. So all I could do was shoot left-handed shots for the whole off-season. I didn't shoot the ball the whole off-season with my right hand really because it just – it was, um, you know, just came out of a cast. I couldn't shoot it. Then once I started shooting again with the right hand towards the end of that off-season, it was – it was just, it felt horrible. Um, it was painful. One out of ten shots that I'd shoot, I'd have a stabbing pain in my elbow I just thought, you know, scar tissue, whatever. I just got to get through it and continue progressing. But I, back of my mind, I remember the surgeon told me post the surgery, he goes, look, you're, you're probably not going to be the same again. Um, your right arm, you'd never get to full extension. You'll never get to um, a position where you feel like it was before. And I actually got it pretty close to a full extension. Like right now, looking at it, it's, it's pretty, pretty close. I'm off about, you know, from my other arm, you know, five, 10 degrees, but- when I came back, the surgeon was like, wow, like I didn't think you'd get I – th- I thought no chance you'd get it that, that close. So I, I still – I did a lot of work, very diligent on my rehab was almost every other day of physio, every other day of training and got it got it to a point where it was still feasible. But 
my shooting definitely took a, a back seat and that was just something that potentially changed the direction of my career, to be honest with you. Um, it changed the way I played. It changed the way I used my strengths on the offensive end. And thankfully, I had a left hand. I had a very, very good weak hand, quote unquote, um, that I'd worked on from high school and college. So I could actually still be feasible in the post and get to my hook shots. But it definitely changed things. So moving on from there, uh, next episode, we'll get into the aftermath of the elbow injury and what, what happened there. A little bit of off-court happenings. Bought a warehouse out in, in Melbourne for a bunch of, you know, the plan was to to have kind of a muscle car workshop uh, without any, it's my first foray into business, out of, without a safe and sound business plan, just kind of went into it blind, uh, bought a warehouse, a decent-sized warehouse, and just wanted, um, just wanted my dad mainly to have something he's passionate about and something he can get get into. He'd been retired for a couple of years. Uh, once I got drafted, obviously they retired. I think it was five or six years into retirement. And I felt like this would be something he can be passionate about. And we started that in in um adding Dandenong for a little bit and and that that just didn't didn't work out the way we thought it would. It was we had big grand plans of uh you watch these shows on on Discovery, um, Chip Foose and a full muscle car warehouse. It goes to the paint. We had, we had a paint booth in there. We had a sanding booth. We had storage areas. We, we, was, we had a CNC machine, which could make our own products, our own metal products or rims or wheels and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, you're relying on a lot of people at that time to run a feasible business like that in something that I wasn't familiar with. Neither was my dad. I mean, my dad came from running his own small business and tried to run it the same way. But- you realize the scale of some of these production companies uh, that, that restore cars in, in the US or in Australia, there's a lot of employees involved and there's a lot of things involved for, for high-end muscle cars. So it was a uh, lesson learned from that one, but um, that was something you know that I was passionate about. I, I wanted to give my dad something to, to get his passions out about. And fortunately, unfortunately, we bought way too many cars. We... Um, we, we bought, at one point, we had about 50 cars sitting in that warehouse um, from everything from Chevrolet Bel to Bu- Buicks to Old- Oldmobile, Oldmobiles to Plymouths to Ford Mustangs to, you know, Chef Camaros, everything, everything and anything, and a lot of Australian muscle car, which was kind of more my passion. So uh, we had to turn, turn that back down, down the line, but that was just a small insight into my foray into trying to be a... A chip foos type muscle car, um, a place you take your car from start to finish, which is just too hard to do in Australia, especially with the way employment laws are and 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 trying to you know get subcontractors and sometimes you can't afford as a business to have a guy on full time, but you need him full time, and then you're like, okay, now you got super and stuff to deal with, which is all part part of running a business, right? But you, you come to see that if you don't have the work, then you've got someone on a full time wage where you're not getting the mass cars in to do the work then what do you do there you don't want to lay people off then do you do subcontractors the problem with subcontractors is that your project's going to be delayed because they've got other work so figuring all that out on the fly like i said without a safe and sound business plan wasn't the brightest idea but i I, you live you learn i live and learn from that and ended up um you know figuring it all out and, and turning it back a fair bit from from what it was what the initial plan was but just a a great learning curve for me in in the world of business and the world of muscle cars and, and learned a lot from that as I did my father and, and we moved on from that pretty quickly. But uh, 50 cars at one point was uh, <laughs> was, was way overkill uh, and this came down to 
at one point, my father had basically an open checkbook to order any cars from the US that he was passionate about and that he liked. And it was kind of cool seeing him see some of these cars for the first time that he'd seen on movies and Mustangs and this and that. And um, yeah, just a small little thing I tried out that didn't 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 work out perfectly, but it's uh, that's a part of life. So. Anyhow, that wraps up uh, episode 12 of the My Journey podcast. Appreciate everyone following and liking these. I know there's a lot of uh, our listeners that specifically tune in for the My Journeys only, and that's fair enough. There's, there's a bunch of different stuff I do with the podcast, so really appreciate all that. And hopefully you continue to listen. If you haven't tried any other podcasts, give them a try as well. We'll try to get a few of my journeys out. Um, uh, probably the next one will be after the new year. As I said, still in the process of setting up a studio. So once that once that studio is uh, up and running, there'll be a whole lot more time to pump these out. Uh, right now is just a little bit little bit uh, hard moving around and doing doing recordings from different places. So other than that, thank you at Rogue Bogues, all your social media platforms. Let me know what you think of this, my journey, not as hard hitting as the, uh, the old Steve podcast from the last couple of episodes, but, uh, hopefully a great insight into, into what goes on in life of an athlete when you're hurt and you have to deal with problems outside of the game. Thank you. Let's get rogue.